2: Hello and welcome to this podcast about Matei Rigo's Capitalism in Chaos on the New Books Network. My name is Roland Clark, and it's my pleasure to be speaking today to Dr. Matei Rigo, who is an assistant professor of history at Brandeis University, specializing in the history of modern, East Central and Western Europe. He does comparative and transnational history, history of capitalism, the global Cold War and global socialisms. Matei, uh, people writing about the First World War and its aftermath in Europe, especially in places like Alsace-Lorraine and Transylvania, they usually focus on questions of ethnic identity and nation building.
0: What made you choose to write about capitalists in this period instead? Thank you, Roland, and thank you for inviting me to this uh, podcast. I think it's it's. The answer is how the emphasis in history um, and among historians is shifting. Nationalism and ethnic identity really came to the fore in the late 1980s and early 1990s with the sort of collapse of the Soviet Union and especially with the wars of uh, Yugoslavia. and. This entire scholarship focused on East Central Europe and East Central Europe became sort of the powerhouse of uh, nationalism studies. And I started my book um, after the 2008, 2009 financial crisis at a time when people were just more interested in issues of class and social inequality. So I wanted to play with this idea and see to what extent merging inter an interest in class, social class, and um, and class difference with with, with with ethnic identity changes this picture? And what actually what I found was was really surprising. So the book has two case studies. Um, one is on the eastern peripheries of. Uh, central Europe or middle Europa and the other is on the Western peripheries. It's uh, a border region, Alsace-Lorraine. And when I went into the archives, I started working on, um, this project around 2011, I expected to find a lot of upheaval and a lot of, you know, ethnic violence and sort of ethnicity and ethnic violence explaining what happened to property? What happened to factories? What happened to banks? And what I ended up finding is that there was actually not much change um, in East Central Europe, and there was a lot of change in Western Europe.
2: Mm. This is a book that, that really turns on its head your seri- or my stereotypes about what I thought was going on in France and Romania. Um, as you said, the book follows the careers of two businessmen and both of them originally come from southwest Germany and then it follows them and their businesses through the early 20th century. You start with Isaac Adler, who comes from Baden to South Air, to Alsace-Lorraine and Johann Renner from Württemberg in Germany to Transylvania. So you end up effectively telling the stories of how industrialists in Alsace-Lorraine and Transylvania coped With these massive changes of war the collapse of empires and the challenges of nation building which was more successful so if i was a german businessman thinking about relocating before the first world war which direction should i go should i have gone east or west
0: roland i think you know you would have been fine either way or (laughs) you could lose out in, (laughs) in both of these regions but i would sort of you know step back a bit and um um Talk a little bit about how you know we we used to sort of see migrations from Central Europe, and um, I think Tarazara's great departure uh, does a really good job at sort of looking at critically the migration to America, because when we talk about immigration or emigration, the first association as for the late nineteenth century is. Uh, people and families going from the ports of Trieste or Hamburg to either South America, places like Argentina or Chile, but primarily to the United States. And um, what I wanted to tell is a different story. Instead of talking about great departures, to talk about these small departures that you just mentioned, that actually a lot of... uh, Um, people migrated within continental Europe. And these migrations were just as important, um, until the 1880s, even quantitatively in terms of you know how many people were involved in them, uh, and that's when my actors were migrating. Um, but also uh, later on, this migration from uh, the Russian Empire to Austria, Hungary, and Germany, from the German Empire to the German-speaking areas of East Central Europe, was extremely important because it was much easier. It was less costly. You moved to uh, uh, a region with a different with, with the same climate, uh, you could join your co religion co religionists, um, whether they were Jew, Jewish or Calvinist or um, Lutherans or Roman Catholics, and you could rely on your existing networks, and that really mattered for those emigrants uh, who had capital, uh, because you know they didn't want to start from scratch. And what I argue is that uh, the role of the state and politics is really important in terms of um, answering your question, where could you <laughs> uh, where could you turn a profit? And what I argue is that uh, the troubled politics of Alsace-Lorraine um, ended up sort of chasing these uh, German immigrants like Isaac Adler, who moved to Strasbourg and uh, bought up... Uh, a defunct uh, factory and turned it into his tannery to produce leather primarily for the uh, German soldiers who were stationed in Alsace. Whereas uh, in Transylvania, the political situation was much more calm um, at the time, um, much less fraught than in Alsace, even though there was a bloody uh, civil war in 1848, 1849. But by the time my actors, uh, they are the Renner family, who uh, they arrived in um, central Transylvania. Um, it was a much more um, calm situation. So funnily enough, uh, East Central Europe, uh, at least until the late 1930s, proved to be a region where more continuity was possible in terms of both business, but in terms of also just life. Uh, because the story I tell is about expulsions happening at places where we don't expect them to happen. They happen in Alsace-Lorraine and they, they don't happen um, in, uh, in Transylvania. During Austria Hungary, and they don't happen in Greater Romania. And we can get into the reasons why, uh, because obviously we need to talk about the fierce um, anti Semitism uh, in East Central Europe, in Greater Romania, in, in, in um, all the ethnic violence and ethnic uh, tensions. So, you know, my project is not playing these down, but I'm saying that, you know, individuals, especially uh, powerful businessmen, have a lot of agency to change this story. To their own
2: advantage. Mm, it, it contextualizes these stories um, in really interesting ways. So, what if we start with Alsace Lorraine? Uh, and just thinking about the late 19th century, it's one of the most heavily industrialized regions in Central Europe, and a noticeable number of German investors started businesses there. What sorts of factors are shaping the region's economic prospects at the time?
0: Again, I would like to return to the point that politics matters and the state matters for economic success. And obviously here I'm relying on a number of colleagues. Uh, Alison Frank wrote about Standard Oil and it's... uh, troubles in Europe and how it relied on the American government and depended on the the, uh, Austrian government for its its economic success. And the case was fairly similar in Alsace-Lorraine, too. So, yes, we associate this region with sort of being the cradle of European industrialization, and it was. But by the second half of the 19th century, there were so many uh, political issues and so many tensions in the region. Um, I mean, the region became the the focus of the Franco-Prussian War, and um, uh, Germany ends up annexing it as this sort of military buffer zone in 1871, and it's remaining a German territory until 1918, Um, even though the French really, you know, at least nominally entered the First World War to reconquer, This territory. So, um, getting back to your, uh, your your original question, why is Alsace Lorraine not flourishing? Uh, it's, you know, the answer lies in the federal structure of the German Empire. Alsace Lorraine never becomes a federal state, whereas Hungary within Austria Hungary becomes an autonomous state of its own with its own. With its ability to sort of um, be, um, with with the ability of economic um, autonomy, uh, Hungary is able to pass economic laws, is able to support domestic industrialists, domestic uh, uh, railway lines, um, is able to set prices to some extent, is able to um, support local industrialists. Okay, now i moving back to Alsace-Lorraine. All this is impossible. Alsace-Lorraine has a, has a governor or a stadthalter, and uh, the German government is uh, on the side of German federal states, especially Prussia. So when it comes to any sort of business legislation, economic legislation, or commissions to the German railways, commissions to the German army, Alsace-Lorraine's industrialists, including the germans who migrate there like the adler and oppenheimer family after 1871 uh, they are uh, experiencing some sort of discrimination so you know the role of a region and how a region is integrated in an empire is um, <clears throat> is really important here
2: um so what about transylvania this is relatively slow to industrialize Um, Was that also because of how it's integrated into the Austro-Hungarian Empire?
0: Transylvania is slow to industrialize and the Hungarian governments after 1867 don't really do much to change it. Um, Until pretty much uh, the period before the First World War. There are various industry acts from the 1880s onwards. They are driven by the idea that we can also witness today that a state needs to be economically um, independent. Um, and what does economic independence mean? Can states rely on agriculture? And the answer in the 19th century as today is that no, they need to have modern industries. Uh, and the... Aim of a lot of this Hungarian legislation is not to sort of protect the Hungarian economy from global markets, but to protect it from uh, protect it from Austria. And um, within the Austro-Hungarian Empire, Hungary is not allowed to pass laws to protect its uh, industries and to um, develop its own custom zone. So, so instead, the government is channeling a lot of funding to big industrial companies now in the 1880s um, and by until the early 1900s this money goes to big corporations headquartered in budapest but there is um, an oppositional heavily nationalist government in the early 19th early 20th century and there agenda is to support small business and mid-sized businesses. So essentially they hand out free money, mostly to ethnic Hungarians and Germans, in part because they are the ones who are um, part of the enterprising bourgeois class. So my family actually ends up receiving, uh, not my family, the family I study, the renners, end up receiving a free plot from the municipality of Kolozhwar. Cluj-Napoca today. They end up receiving 50,000 crowns, which is a small sum to buy machinery, mostly from Germany and Austria, to build up their own tannery. So they essentially um, become industrialists with the help of the state. Now, uh, and the story I tell is a story of bankruptcy too, and the story of the failure of the state to create industrialists from scratch, because the runners go bankrupt almost by early 1914, and they are saved by the First World War. And of course, the First World War is a very important part uh, in the story that I tell in the book, because what I argue is that we tend to focus on the decline and eventual collapse of both Austria-Hungary and Germany during the First World War, especially when it comes to economic life. Everybody remembers Oskar Yasi, the Hungarian civic radical, saying that the Austro-Hungarian war effort was doomed to fail uh, from scratch. Uh, Even in August uh, 1914, Yasi apparently saw that if you run the statistics, This empire is not able to wage a war, but the story I'm telling um, is is the opposite. Uh, Austria-Hungary was able to sort of uh, sustain a war effort for actually quite long. And and what I'm trying to do is to shift the perspective from treasuries to industrial companies and ask uh, how that changes our view of the First World War. And what I argue is that the, the experience of the bourgeoisie, the experience of uh, industrialists and bankers in Central Europe is completely different than the experience of state treasuries. Because state treasuries are declining, but that doesn't mean that industrial companies are declining as well. And this is something we've also seen with COVID. I mean, most of the states went through extremely dire times, including most of the populations, but some companies shot up. Now, the First World War is uh, different because the states were much weaker to go after corporations than today. Um, Although even today, I mean, probably more could be done um, to this effect. But there was basically no corporate tax in Germany and Austria-Hungary, so that allowed for a bunch of businesses to shoot up and to amass gigantic profits um, that then allowed, um, and here I'm sort of moving on to the post 1918 period and why this matters, it it really made the bourgeoisie of the Austro-Hungarian and to some extent the German empire much more robust by 1918 than how they had been in 1914, which explains why there are so many continuities uh, in terms of uh, ethnic minority influence in the successor states, especially of Austria-Hungary after 1918. They just simply emerged richer and wealthier by 1918 than they had been before the war.
2: Mm, I'm still obsessed with this question of um, how I'm going to make money. so. You you pointed out that some companies really made a lot of money out of COVID, Um, places like Zoom, and now we've got oil companies making huge profits while the cost of oil goes through the roof. Um, What was the trick to making good money if you're a businessman during the First World War?
0: Okay, great. Yeah, if we could all go back in time, um, the best would be to establish a company that supplies the militaries of Germany and Austria-Hungary, because there was no cap on prices. So especially until 1915, uh, both militaries regarded economics as, I wouldn't even say secondary, as tertiary to their agendas. So it, they ended up buying everything and um, at any price, almost. Um, Of course, those companies that did not have the raw materials, that did not have cotton coming from overseas uh, due to the blockade, those had to decline and the Alsatian textile industry declined. But those companies that were able to furnish the joint militaries did quite well for themselves. And here again, I would like to uh, repeat the point that um, the autonomy of Hungary within Austria-Hungary was extremely important because the Hungarians early on established their own war companies. That means companies that united a bunch of smaller and or mid-sized Hungarian um, industrial producers and lobbied for their interests um, at the the joint um, military. Now in Germany, the case was different. So the German military soon decided that Alsace-Lorraine is is kind of a dangerous place to invest and to commission industrial companies to produce for the army. So they ended up uh, not extending commissions to to companies right behind the front lines. And let's not forget that uh, East Central Europe, including Transylvania, but also much of of Austria, Hungary and Germany um, are not affected directly by by fighting in the First World War, especially by 1917. The front lines are pretty far from the borders of the two empires, whereas what do we see in Western Europe? The front line actually stabilizes through Alsace-Lorraine. The French army even manages to occupy part of uh, southern Alsace. So the entire region um, is under a very stringent military occupation and that impacts um, industrial companies there as well. Um, Now, but I have to say and and sort of repeat the point that it's not all about ethnicity and nationalism. So even the companies that in Alsace-Lorraine that the German army doesn't really like and that are owned by native Alsatians who fly the French flag in their corporate offices. Um, Even those companies make a killing, um, especially those that manage to uh, furnish the German army with uh, trench building materials um, and all that, because... soon the two empires make the decision that it should actually be future generations and the enemies that pay for the war so not the not their contemporaries so they don't levy taxes on home front populations, and they also don't levy taxes on um, corporations. And corporations and businessmen are quite smart, these are not the ones who would invest in war loans, it's mostly ordinary people in their savings that, uh, that you know, that are invested this way and most of the people end up losing it because successor states of Austria, Hungary and Germany are not really good at compensating people for <laughs> financing the uh, war efforts of these empires. So what corporations do, they end up reinvesting the money in uh, further development and this is why we see famous businesses such as the Krups, the um, um famous German arms producers um, or the uh, Weiss-Manfred company in Budapest or the coal mines associated with the Corrine family in Hungary that also owns the coal mines of the Giu Valley in Transylvania, just uh, emerging um, wealthier, but also with a lot of investment in uh, production, mining, uh, producing steel. So so actually getting back to your question of uh, how to make a how to make a profit uh, it was actually almost effortless because the states allowed for industrial companies to get wealthy and ironically getting back to your earlier point about nationalism in the hungarian case when social democrats or even some of the Uh, opposition MPs in the parliament, because the Hungarian parliament is uh, in session during the First World War, when uh, they interrogate the minister of war and the prime minister on why not to tax these enormous, gigantic extra profits, the answer is Austria. Oh, Austria is not taxing Austrian companies, then Hungary how could Hungary tax its own companies and, and, and disadvantage uh, the domestic bourgeoisie? So of course the justification was nationalism but what I argue is that nationalism and and, and sort of this uh, uh, um, nationalist rhetoric was often just a rhetoric and the reality was that uh, uh, these states really wanted um, their allies and supporters the government really wanted to support, loyal industrialists during the war.
2: Um, So I'm a historian of nationalism. And therefore, even if you say it's um, it's not the the big deciding factor all the time, it's still fascinating. Um, You tell a really interesting story just before the war in um, Alsace-Lorraine, when you've got workers from a train building factory in Strasbourg singing the Marseille Um, because they got drunk after work and they start singing songs. Um, why is that a problem? Why did that cause some big crisis for the company?
0: Yeah, that's a a very interesting um, conflict. So you would have a factory and at the time in the late 19th century, the factory is also some sort of a second home for workers. It organizes their free time. Um, Sometimes that's the only place where workers can take a shower. It also has a a casino or a pub where they can um, have a a beer. Usually it's a beer, even in Alsace for workers. Um, And they also, you know, engage in cultural activities. They have their theater groups, they have choirs. And so the incident I'm telling um, um, about two years before the outbreak of the First World War is that, you know, after a night of drinking, a few workers start singing, singing the French anthem, the Marseillaise, uh, and, um, and, and one of the local papers reports on it and the news makes it to Germany, makes it to Prussia, and one of the Prussian um, Reichstag members intervenes and um, essentially questions why should the German army and railroads Extend offers and uh, uh, not offers. Extend. uh, um, Why should it purchase material and products from a company that's so pro-French? So I think what's interesting in this story is that unlike in Bohemia, unlike in Austria, and unlike in Hungary, uh, the the state and this means the German state and the German government takes sides here, and takes the side of German nationalists. Whereas in Hungary, even until 1916, until the Romanian attack on Transylvania, the government is really trying to to sort of Push those voices that argue for the discrimination and the economic discrimination of Romanians to the background, and of course, they're trying to um, um, also marginalize the voices of antisemites um, who um, who blame um, um, Jewish businessmen uh, for um, certain. Um, you know, the failures of the war effort and for for essentially blame only the Jews for getting rich during the war. But there the government intervenes against these grassroots nationalist activists. And what we see in Alsace-Lorraine as early as 1912 is that the German government takes the side of German nationalists. And eventually this company that produces, um, it's an engineering company that produces, Railroad carriages and all kinds of, um, um all kinds of uh, steel products, um, has to be split into two companies. One company has to move to the French side of the border. Um, the director of the company is fired. Uh, it causes a big. Uh, scandal um, in Alsace-Lorraine, and it's completely irrational. The German economy ends up losing one of the strongest and largest companies in Alsace uh, this way. Uh, So again, what we see here is that, uh, if you will, the the economic impact of nationalism and nationalist um, hostilities is much larger than um, in East Central Europe.
2: And after the war, so there's a lot of German businessmen in Alsace-Lorraine even trading with Germany before and during the war, but um, by the end of the war, France gets this region. So it wouldn't have been very pleasant being a German businessman in Alsace-Lorraine after the war. Um, How did French businessmen and French authorities establish their authority once the fighting had stopped?
0: So the French essentially continued the war after November 1918, and they become a model for their allies in East Central Europe. But ironically, France is an extremely radical force in Western Europe when it comes to its own interests, but it's a fairly I would I would say even pro imperial force in East Central Europe and the pro status quo force in East Central Europe um and it's taking the side ironically of its former enemies the businessmen of Austria-Hungary, and to some extent even Germany, whereas in Alsace-Lorraine, the French Army immediately expropriates all the Germans and puts uh, over 100,000 people on trains. This is actually one of the first deportations, actually the first major deportation um, in Europe in the 20th century. Germans uh, can only take um, 40 kilograms of their personal belongings and are sent over uh, to cities like Frankfurt in uh, southwestern Germany where they um, form the kernel of a disgruntled German minority that, uh, of course, uh, becomes the supporter of the Nazi movement by the early 1930s. So French policies are extremely radical in Alsace-Lorraine, but they really try to prevent further upheaval in uh, East Central Europe, in part because France really does need states and governments uh, like Romania's um, and also Poland's to fight the Bolsheviks in Russia uh, uh, and, and, of course one of the reason is ideological and this is the story we know but what my book emphasizes is that france really is against the bolsheviks because it wants to recover all the investments that french companies and individuals made prior to 1914 in uh, russia and after the failure of this effort uh, france and the French government and French corporations like the schneider Crozot, that ends up buying Skoda of Prague wants to buy the port of Budapest and take over the Hungarian railways along with mines and banks in, um, uh, in Greater Romania. France really wants to recreate East Central Europe as it's sort of new Russia (laughs) as an outlet for French investments from which lucrative profits can flow back to the metropole, to Paris, because France has an enormous trade uh, imbalance. So uh, France really wants to prevent successor states from expropriating these wealthy minorities in part because it wants to seize um, the property of (laughs) minority Uh, former Austro-Hungarian subjects, but also because it wants to prevent further upheaval. And in Alsace-Lorraine, it's very interesting that uh, the French also are ready to forget that a lot of alsace lorrainers who were apparently, you know, all they did for, uh, at least in the French uh, textbooks, and the official rhetoric, uh, all they did for 40 years was to wait for the French to liberate them from the Germans. Uh, so obviously this wasn't the case. And the French are ready to forget and forgive uh, the enormous profits that Alsatians and Lorrainers made supplying the German army between 1914 and 1918 and put the, put all the blame to the German minority of Alsace and lorraine that constitutes about... Um, 6-7% of the population. And these are the populations that are getting expelled. Now, even here, uh, we know um, a lot about expulsions. There is the work of Laird Boswell. Also, Tara Zara had a pioneering article co- comparing the situation in uh, Bohemia and Alsace. A- and I think what my book adds to it is to show that even in the case of the radical French state, those uh, Germans... Who had um, large industrial companies and with whom the French wanted to cooperate had it much much easier than ordinary Germans. They could stay in Alsace for much longer. They could uh, and once they had to leave, they could leave with their uh, they could leave with their painting collections. They could leave with their um, with their with their sort of. Uh, Um, um, wealth and gold and and all kinds of uh, investments and they weren't as thoroughly expropriated as um, ordinary germans were
1: this episode is brought to you by shopify do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real pos you need shopify for retail from accepting payments to managing inventory shopify pos has everything you need to sell in person Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system.
2: Um, so you said that France is really concerned to make sure that the new nation states that are appearing in Eastern Europe don't expropriate the new minorities. So German and Hungarian speakers in Transylvania did quite well, as long as the Austro-Hungarian empire was there. Um but how does, once that region becomes part of the greater Romanian state, how did Romanians treat businesses run by minorities?
0: Thank you for this question, Roland. I think um, our focus on greater Romania, and rightly so, has been on the ethnic violence and ethnic tensions of this uh, state. Uh, and in a way, I'm picking up the thread Um, um that's there in um, in Irina Liveseanu's groundbreaking book and i think you know at least uh for me one of the one of the arguments um of uh, Irina Libizianu is that the greater romanian state was not very efficient um that it took an enormous effort to consolidate uh the new um state and to uh, to actually create it from um from scratch. And um, my book looks at how this looks like on the level of economic and business life. And I think uh, why this is a super interesting angle is that we can see the enormous bifurcation between the rhetoric of anti-Semitism and anti-Hungarian sentiment and actual cooperation. Um, if not conviviality and friendships or a marriage of convenience um, on the ground. So what I try to argue is that uh, ethnic nationalism and the drive to seek profits is not a binary. It's not that uh, people and politicians couldn't be anti-Hungarian in a tavern um, in the evening and the following day they... Uh, would couldn't be serving on the boards of uh Hungarian, German, or Jewish-owned company. So what my book does is to document these uh, very unlikely economic alliances and friendships that also involve uh, the otherwise anti-Hungarian uh, uh, prime ministers of Romania, Alexandru vaida Voivod, who serves on the company of the Renner Tannery that had a Jewish uh, director, Moses Farkas, and also document these uh, um, um, these unlikely alliances, and um, also I mean also to nuance a little bit the attitude of the Romanian leadership. For instance, the um, the the peasant party that uh, is uh, also relying on the base of the Romanian National Party, which was the Hun- Romanian minority party in Hungary prior to nineteen eighteen, is is more concerned with land and less concerned with industrial property, less concerned with businesses at the time. And it's really the national liberalers around the Bratianus who want to nationalize and take away the wealth of these uh, ethnic minority businesses. So also there is this tension um, among Romanian elites on what to do uh, with ethnic minorities. So that's on an ideological or political level. But on the level of you know practical realities, the new state does not have the resources to expropriate and replace um, the elites of Austria-Hungary. And I also doubt that this was on their agenda at the time. I think they were really interested in the land reform, uh, but they were less interested in uh, sort of further destabilizing the state. Um, by these expropriations. In fact, what I argue is that the expertise and connections and networks of uh, the businessmen of the former Austria Hungary are crucial to creating and solidifying Greater Romania as an economic space uh, by the nineteen twenties, by the late nineteen twenties.
2: Mm. Um. To turn back to economics, we we hear a lot about hyperinflation in Germany and the Soviet Union during this period. But actually, this is a problem almost everywhere where you've got old currencies being replaced by new ones or revalued. What happens in Transylvania when they get rid of the old Austro-Hungarian crown and introduce
0: the Romanian leu? Thank you. This is a this is a very, very important question, and I would sort of step back a bit. Uh, again, um, I would say that uh, let's talk about the peace conference um, and. Uh, the Paris Peace Conference, because this is something that gets a lot of attention uh, these days and will impact, and I will get to the currency problem in my, in my answer. But uh, if you visit Budapest today and you go to the main square of the parliament, you see the new Trianon Memorial, you actually have to uh, walk down. Several steps, and uh, you find you easily find yourself, or soon find yourself in this pit. And you look up from the pit to these, uh, you know, black granite slabs that list all the uh, all the cities and towns that Hungary lost in uh, nineteen twenty due to the Treaty of Trianon. And one of the big omissions of this memorial and the commemoration to Trianon is that um, states like Hungary but also, you know, we can talk about Germany as well. Um, They don't, you know, the peace conference ends up following developments on the ground. Uh, The peace conference endorses these territorial changes, but it doesn't really uh, initiate them. So by the time the peace conference uh, convenes in Paris in January 1919, the Hungarian government has lost or had lost um, its jurisdiction and power over Transylvania. But still, among contemporaries, us today, there was this fascination and enormous interest in the peace conference. So the Romanian elites did not want to touch the issue of Austro-Hungarian crowns because similar to you know, uh, Samuel Beckett's uh, play waiting for Godot, they were waiting for the peace conference. They were like Vladimir and Estragon, sort of, you know, scrambling to find some sort of an answer on when the peace conference would regulate the issue of currencies. And, uh, and the situation is quite the same in France as well. So the French uh, minister of finance, uh, Claude, uh, Famously says, payera, "Germany will pay," so they end up uh, exchanging the German, the inflated German marks of Alsatians at a much higher rate. Um, it's similar to, let's say, if you received, uh, um, if you received uh, two dollars for your euro now at a time when the two currencies are. Are on a par, actually. So uh, the French end up exchanging the uh, the currency of this wealthy region and this population at a premium because they think that eventually the peace conference will simply uh, force Germany to pay for it. And the Romanians are more skeptical, but still they end up postponing the um, currency conversion um, until the very last moment, literally the eleventh hour. Um, when the peace conference actually forces them to do so uh, by themselves. So um, what's happening is that the Austro-Hungarian clown is inflating. It's in circulation even two years after the collapse of Austria-Hungary, which is kind of fascinating, you you end up using the currency of a state that doesn't exist, and the Romanian government is forced to convert this money two years after the collapse in September 1920, at actually at a rate that uh, is 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 higher than the market rate. Um, so they end up waiting, waiting, and waiting, and all this waiting um, um, amounts to. Um, to enormous losses for the Romanian treasury, because had they converted it much earlier, uh, then they could have saved some money. But by the time they end up converting the currency of Austria-Hungary, it actually means profit for the mostly German, Hungarian and Jewish bourgeoisie of, uh, um, of Transylvania. Because they're the people that actually still have the crowns. They are the people who still have the crowns and they are the people who, um, unlike, let's say, Romanian landowners, even the wealthier among them, um, they have their assets in land by that time, whereas the bourgeoisie would have a lot of, uh, have a lot of cash on them. Um, and uh, they have an interest in the state, sort of converting it at a, at, a, at a good price. So the Romanians, when they march in in 1918, they say, um, which is actually a, sort of a smart move, uh, but it, uh, they, 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 they devalue the crown to 50% of its pre-war value, which of course causes enormous dismay even among Transylvania Romanians because here the liberators come in and um, essentially half the savings of, of the Romanian uh, Romanian peasants but also Romanian the Romanian middle class, the Romanian uh, banks like Albina. So there is a lot of dismay and this is why uh, I would say that finances are crucial to understand why there is this, uh, anti-Bucharest sentiment in Transylvania as early as November 1918. And this is why even among uh, ethnic Romanians, the rhetoric of uh, um, colonization that, that you, Roland, write about um, in, in your book uh, is so salient um, so salient by, 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 as, by as early as 1918. And they compare the Bucharest government to the former Budapest government. And some of them, Um, like the Bonnard economist um, Horea Maniu says that, well, actually Budapest was was much better economically than the rule of the uh, Bucharest government. But of course, uh, two years pass, and by 1920, this 50% devaluation um, proves to be a boon because the crown is uh, basically losing most of its value. But by that time, the Romanian government cannot simply... uh, you know say that populations will just have to exchange their crowns on the market rate because that would that would have meant the um, bankruptcy of the entire region so they have to foot the bill and they have to get french credits to finance the conversion of the austro-hungarian crown so it's not germany that ends up paying for this conversion but france
2: oh what a tangled web we weave um,
0: so these industrialists in Transylvania, they
2: they stay and they don't do too badly. Um, but your actors um, in France, the Adler family and the Oppenheimers, they're forced to leave Alsace-Lorraine in March 1920 and move back to Weimar Germany.
0: How do they cope in Germany? Do they like being back, so to speak? They have it much easier than ordinary Germans, in part because they can rely on their pre-war ties to the Deutsche Bank, and they also do a very uh, smart move. They take on a lot of credits because they have credibility as one of the leading industrialists of uh, Alsace and Lorraine, um, and they end up rebuilding their factory in Weimar, Germany. Um, and they rebuild it on credits that end up being annulled by the German inflation. So in the case of this one particular family, the inflation works out, uh, quite well because they can repay their, all these credits, um, that they use to sort of, you know, to rebuild their own, um, to rebuild their, uh, their enterprises. But for a lot of ordinary Germans transition to Germany is not that easy in part because As I said, you know, the the whole federal structure of Germany is really important here. So a lot of Bavarians um, or You know, people from Baden-Württemberg are asking, why are we taking these foreigners? They are Alsatians. Well, you know, they are Germans technically, but, you know, where is Germany at the time? Um, It's a federated state, federal state with a lot of independence, um, especially for states like Bavaria. And it's not immediately clear what connects Alsace-Lorraine Germans to Bavarians um, at the time. So there are a lot of uh, tensions here. And I mean, it's in a way uh, even more radical than the situation faced by Hungarians who end up fleeing Romanian rule in Transylvania. Many of them live in um, train carriages um, outside of Budapest, and many of them encountered the similar sort of perplexion by local populations and the sort of lack of solidarity. Um, But in Germany, I would say this is even more pronounced, in part because there are so many Germans appearing, um, you know, from one day to the next in uh, German federal states.
2: You're really breaking down this whole East-West thing. Um, It's hard to think of Europe as in terms of East and West when you describe it in the terms, the way you're talking about it. Um, So Greater Romania... To come back to Transylvania, um, you've got a lot of workers' unrest in the interwar period, as well as the rise of violent right-wing anti-Semitism. How did the rise of anti-Semitic nationalism impact your industrialists that you're looking at in Transylvania?
0: Anti-Semitism is uh, is an extremely troubling and an extremely relevant aspect of the uh, period. What um, <clears throat> I um, end up um, closing the book with is the story of the 1927 student pogroms in um, um, in all the major cities of, uh, of Transylvania and to sort of showcase it as the weakness of the Romanian government or you know if you will the inability the Romanian government to um, to curb this, uh, this violence by, um, by students that also affect the, um, the Renner family and is definitely part of their, their experiences. Uh, but um, I would also say that uh, this uh, grassroots anti-Semitism and the anti-Semitic legislation of the state um, is really mediated and changed through the agency of local actors and local bureaucrats on the ground that don't really go with the directives of the Bucharest government that uh, wants these municipalities, chambers of com- commerce to fire all the Jewish and Hungarian mm-hmm. and German members and to replace them with uh, Romanians. So. What we have is that at the time of the pogrom uh, in 1927, the elected leader of the Transylvanian chapter of the Association of Romanian Industrialists is is called Moses Farkas, who is a Hungarian Jewish businessman, uh, a friend of Emil Haceganu and Alexandru Vajda uh, Voivod. What we see is that the local Transylvanian elites pretty much uh, close their ranks when it comes to the very radical demands of the of the Bucharest government. And of course, they would not be supporting um, riots and pogroms such as the 1927 um, riots. So it's really a Janus phased picture. Anti-Semitism is there and also um, um, rabid nationalism is there from from both sides and and the uh, and um you but but it's not really a binary of either profits and conviviality and friendship and business deals uh versus or anti-Semitism, but these can exist side by side. So for instance, the runners are fined by the municipality of Cluj in the nineteen twenties for not flying the Romanian uh flag at a given national holiday, and uh At the same time, they are receiving uh, state subsidies, um, normally earmarked for ethnic Romanian businesses, to expand their factory. So um, these two can exist side by side, and, and we have to be mindful of the fact that the Romanian state has different actors with different agendas, similar to... Um, Hungarian minorities or Jewish minorities had a variety of ideological and political positions, so it's very difficult to um, to generalize on the basis of ethnicity alone.
2: Mm. Um, yeah, everything gets more and more complex the more the more you look into the details. Um, there's there's quite a lot of these sort of really amazingly complex stories in this book. Um, before we finish. Listening to you talk, almost every time I asked a question, your answer has been, if I ask about Alsace-Lorraine, you say, well, let me tell you about Austria-Hungary. If I ask about Transylvania, you have to compare it to France. Um, What do you see the challenges or possibilities of this sort of comparative history based on micro historical case studies in different parts of Europe? Would you do it again? Um, Would you encourage someone else to take up this approach? Or is it really just too much work?
0: Yeah, I had a I had a colleague once who told me, oh, you should just publish two monographs, one on Alsace, Lorraine, and the other on Transylvania. And it would probably have been easier, I think, but it's also much more fascinating to do a comparative and transnational study. I think what matters here is that uh, there was an actual entity uh, of the central powers that really came close to each other during the First World War. So it's not a random comparison, Um but the sort of like excavate, it's an excavation of uh, Central Europe without the idealization um, that was very common in the 1990s, that sort of equated uh, Central Europe with some sort of superior uh, culture, especially when it came to the East. Uh, you know, I, I think that Central Europe or Middle Europa, especially by 1917, was an extremely troubling and troubled entity based on imperialism and the quasi-colonial exploitation of occupied territories such as occupied Romania or occupied Serbia or uh, or Ukraine, but let alone, it still existed. So, um, as you were saying earlier, it's very difficult to Tell this story with an iron curtain mentality that sharply separates the history of East Central Europe from that of Western Europe. I mean, Germany and the Austria-Hungary were close allies, and this uh, this actual um, this alliance makes it possible to do the kind of project that I'm doing to look at how uh, businessmen, the bourgeoisie, but also workers, fared in different parts of this. Uh, um, of this multi-imperial um, entity, Central Europe. So, I would really encourage comparisons of this kind, and there could be so many, um, so many innovative uh, projects coming out of this. What I could do is really just focus on these, um, these two, um, two regions. So, I would say if there is some institutional, political, or economic um, glue that. Um, f- forces territories together, then I think, uh, or that glues territories together, for lack of a better word, then I think um, such an investigation is is warranted. Uh, and I would probably do it again. And uh, especially for my second project, I look at connections between uh, um, East Central Europe and Southeast Asia. So that's an even during the Cold War, starting from the um, East Europeans and Germans who end up enlisting in the French Foreign Legion, fleeing the Soviet army and end up perpetrating genocide in Indochina and later in Algeria. And then how all this history is forgotten uh, under the rhetoric of global socialism and the solidarity of the peoples of East Central Europe with uh, states like like Vietnam, so that's an even broader uh, geographical range. So uh, what, you, what what we could say is that I didn't learn from all the difficulties of the first book. I sort of uh, made the job even more difficult for the for the second project. So probably I'm the wrong person to ask for advice. But I I can say it's fun. Yeah, but, uh, it certainly
2: sounds like it. Um, that's about all we have time for today. Um, but thank you very much for sharing your book with us, Mate, and. I look forward to talking to you about the next one when it comes out.
0: Thank you, Roland, for having me at this podcast.